Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 19th, 2018. Okay, let's work this out. Next week, I'm going to be out of studio, by the way. In fact, I'll be out for a couple of weeks. Pastoral duties. We'll talk about that at the end of the week, though. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is, like, no shortage of weird, crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes. <laughs> those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we apparently need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put out there for for consumption by Christians is far from biblical, far from Christian. It's really, really, really awfully bad and not even remotely biblically accurate. In fact, <laughs> no one's doing the fact-checking anymore, at least not live, not while it's happening in the church. And uh, they, they've got people that are sitting there slurping this stuff up, thinking it's the best stuff ever, and really all it is is a complete diet of utter pablum and nonsense. And strange that um, that Christians who are so clearly instructed in God's Word to not put up with sound doctrine, to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine and who are instructed by God through His Word to contend for the faith once uh, for all delivered to the saints— they're like AWOL in the fight. They're, in fact, they're like part of the problem now. And and if you point out, whoa, 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 that's not what the Bible says. You know, you, they gang up on you and beat you to within an inch of your life. Strangest thing, but uh, yeah. So we do the debunking work for the purpose of helping to build up the body of Christ, edify people, warn them, protect them, equip them. That's really what we're all about. And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, which again, you know, kind, kind of causes a little bit of. <clears throat> consternation for those who are being critiqued. So uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, let me tell you about this one. This is one of those ones where we ain't got no theme. 
Yeah, normally we have a theme, and uh, the word, you know, everything is kind of all pulling in the same direction, and it could be an apologetic theme, it can be an epistemological theme, it can be a doctrinal theme. These are the different ways that I, you know, try to theme episodes of Fighting for the Faith. This one is just, yeah, no, <laughs> no, 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 no theme, it's just, <clears throat> we're going to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks is the best way I could put it. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update. It's been a while since we've done that, and uh, part of the reason for that is actually quite simple. Um, uh, William Tapley is insane. I mean, <laughs> just like bonafide bonkers. But the other part of it is, is that he's been going on about QAnon and... God admit, I just like not only don't know, don't care. You know this QAnon thing. It, it, I've noticed that there are a few of the prophecy guys who are like literally baking their brain on the the QAnon stuff. And so William Tapley is clearly one of them. I do believe that William Tapley may be a direct descendant of Don Quixote. Um, if you've never read that book, you should. Um, but uh, yeah, I do believe he's related directly related to Don Quixote. And uh, it looks like he's um, decided <laughs> that he's going to be doing live streaming on his YouTube channel uh, and showing him praying the rosary. Yeah, no, I'm not making that up. So, so uh, <clears throat> segment numero uno will be uh, William Tapley talking about Isaiah and Micah verify the prophecies of QAnon. Okay, so that 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 will be first segment. Second segment, uh, we're going to check in with Patricia King, and she has a prophetic word apparently for us. And the prophetic word is nets and sickles, and we're going to note how this messaging from Patricia King, which by the way I'm hearing very similar messaging across the NAR you know wing, the five folder wing of the uh, charismatic Pentecostal movements. And uh, the, we're going to listen as she really is trying to prepare people mentally and, you know, suggest that, oh, something is just around the corner. The season's changing. Something's going to break loose, you know, like, you know, the uh, you know some kind of big revival or something. Because remember, Billy Graham died earlier this year. And so all of these uh, nar you know types are you know out there claiming that the great harvest the billion souls harvest the rise of Joel's army it's just around the, it's going to be here any second now and uh, we're going to listen to patricia king you know kind of doing that type of work um and then we're going to i mean take a hard turn to the left i mean i don't think it gets any hard turn lefty than this we're going to head over uh, to the Mayfield Salisbury Parish as we uh, listen to the Reverend Dr. Scott McKenna uh, decide that he's going <laughs> to question the existence of the devil. Yeah, that's kind of weird because, you know, Jesus actually believed in the devil. Mm -hmm. And we're going to listen to his leftist, just completely bonkers narrative, false narrative as to, you know, why the devil doesn't really exist as he attacks the word of God. And then to round out our number one, we're going to be uh, listening to um, Nicole Crank um, and her twisting false narrative uh, spun around 
uh, the story of uh, you know getting out of the world uh, when you're in a boat that's in a storm. You'll see a Galilee storm kind of stuff. And then hour number two, a sermon review. Uh, we're going to be listening to Rick Warren's recently. Uh, delivered sermon titled How to Keep Your Tank Filled Up Instead of Running on Empty. And we're going to do a little bit of basic work. If you've never heard about the proper distinction of God's law and the gospel, this is going to be a sermon review that will be quite helpful for you because in order to rightly understand God's word and also begin to know how to properly analyze uh, false teachers, somebody uh, of the ilk of Rick Warren, you're going to need to know the proper distinction between law and gospel because we're going to demonstrate that uh, Rick Warren is a law preacher, but he ain't a law gospel preacher, and uh, preachers need to preach both law and gospel, and we'll consider the implications of the fact that Rick Warren is a law preacher, but not a law gospel preacher. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable uh, since we're going to start with a... William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times Update. Let's do this. Doom and gloom, coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune. Doom and gloom. Is telling us the end is coming soon. Very soon, you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom, very soon, rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom, very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. All right, so uh, <clears throat> hope you're sitting down. Like I said, uh, you know, William Tapley, I think, is a direct descendant of Don Quixote, and he is literally one of the most hapless um, eschatological prophetic types to ever uh, grace the interwebs on YouTube. And this is the reason why we feature him, because he's doing exactly the same thing that somebody like a Jonathan Kahn does or a John Hagee does. It's just that William Tapley has no, no chops. No chops at all. And so when he says things, people go, oh, no, really? But, uh, you know, but when Hagee does it or Jonathan Kahn does it or Jim Baker does it, everyone goes, ooh. But it's, it's the same nonsense. So I uh, <clears throat> hope you're sitting down. Here's William Tapley. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of these end times. This past week, QAnon gave us several very interesting prophecies, I call them. And he- QAnon giving us prophecies. <laughs> he's related to Don Quixote. This is what I'm saying to myself now. Just remember, he's related to Don Quixote. He melted his brain in the sun. Got it, okay said that um, Donald Trump was attacked by the Mossad. And he also mentioned the CIA. And he showed this photograph of a missile being launched near, I guess, Whitby Air Force Base. 
And they ask them, did they fire it? No, no, we did not fire it. But you won't call, find this story anywhere in the mainstream media, which tells me that QAnon could very well be correct. So the reason why QAnon is correct is because there's no evidence of the story that they're reporting on. <laughs> is is that how evidence works? I'm, I'm just curious. If there is no evidence, that proves that the story's true. Aye. And this is rather strange because we know Donald Trump is supported by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And we know Benjamin Netanyahu is a whitehead because he was attacked by Barack Obama. In fact, Barack Obama used American tax dollars to try to defeat Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, this dichotomy between a faithful remnant of Israel who supports Donald Trump and the black hats of Israel, like the Mossad, there is this separation which is prophesied in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 45 and Micah chapter 5. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Consider me skeptical here. Micah 5 and Isaiah 45 prophesy these details that uh, QAnon is apparently covering and the faithful remnant in Israel and all that kind of stuff. So the fight between the Mossad and Trump supporters is in Isaiah 45. You know, <laughs> just... You say something like that, and the first thing I want to do is like open up my Bible because, you know, that might be a little bit helpful at this point. So, yeah, I'm, as we uh, are talking, as I'm speaking, I am firing up my uh, <clears throat> my copy of the Bible. It, you know, I have Bible software from Accordance uh, Bible, and going to Isaiah 45, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for Donald Trump and Mossad. In Isaiah 45, thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over and again, you got all these people saying, Donald Trump is Cyrus. No, he's not. He's Donald Trump. Anyway, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and I will level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name, and I name you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other beside me. There is no God, and I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me, I am Yahweh, and there is no other God. Now, note here, if Donald Trump were really the fulfillment of this prophecy regarding King Cyrus, who lived a long time ago, by the way, he's been dead for at least a couple of days now, um, <clears throat> sarcasm, and um, so if Donald Trump were truly the fulfillment of this prophecy, which he's not, then it would be for the purpose of everybody on planet Earth knowing that there is only one God and that Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures, the Bible, is that deity. 
And you would have to say by extension that that means that Christ is uh, is also true because Jesus Christ is none other than the one true God of the Old, of the Old Testament in human flesh. So I will note that um, American politics has not resulted in and Donald Trump's presidency has not led to the effect that people around the country and the world are saying, oh my goodness, there is only one true God. Now, Micah chapter 5, by the way, says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with the rod. They shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler in Israel. This Micah 5 is a messianic prophecy regarding Jesus and where he was going to be born. How does that, again, relate to Donald Trump, faithful Israel, and the Mossad? You know, I, I'm just not seeing the connection here. But you have to combine the two chapters. Whoa, 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 wait a second here. Backing it up. So I have to combine Isaiah 45 and Micah 5. What kind of Bible-twisting technique is this? There is this separation which is prophesied in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 45 and Micah chapter 5. But you have to combine the two chapters. And this is how you meld them together, so to speak. And I have this... What? He's literally holding up a, a you know a golden rod piece of paper yeah the goldenrods of color and there, he's got these columns so you Isaiah 45 and Micah 5 equals I dash m50 okay so you begin with Isaiah 45 verse 1 then you read verse 17 then you read Micah 5 verse 10, Micah 5 verse 8, and then go back to Isaiah 45 verse 5, and then on to verse 22, then back to Micah verse thir- chapter 5 verse 13, then verse 11. What? <laughs> this is no way to read the Bible. What is this? Um, chart on my website. And you can download the chart so that you can understand which verses to read at which time. And I've explained this before, how I arrived at this particular configuration of verses. I don't know anybody who's done this. Like, he's related to Don Quixote. He's related to Don Quixote. A lot of it was hit and miss. And this may not be my final uh, arrangement, but I believe this is certainly much better than... It is as found in your Bibles. And yeah, so he's he literally is saying he's improved upon the Bible by learning how to combine Isaiah 45 and Micah chapter 5. Unbelievable. I think you get the point. But, you know, so he this is an eschatological code that he claims to have kind of, you know, via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because he does claim to be a co-prophet. Not sure who he's co-profiting with. Uh, and uh, in his prophetic utterances, he has learned to take the verses from Isaiah 45 and blow them apart into individual verses and uh, take the uh, Micah 5, blow that apart into individual verses and then rearrange them 
into a, a, a new reading that he claims is an improvement on what we have in our Bibles. Yeah, and uh, when you hear people talking like this and cracking codes like that, don't listen to them. Just say to yourself, these people sound like they may actually be related to Don Quixote, because they are. Moving along. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roly bowl a ball, roly bowl a ball, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. So uh, we're heading over to Patricia King's YouTube channel. And uh, she recently did a live stream um, titled uh, Prophetic Word from Patricia King, Nets and Sickles. And we're going to note how in this video she is engaging in kind of the, you know, if you would, putting suggestive thoughts into people's minds within the NAR wing of the charismatic church and uh, and basically trying to get them to anticipate the some some great revival that is, uh, that is, uh, we're on the cusp of it. It's just about here. And, uh, this is a prof- now prophetic word from Patricia King. Here we go. I have an exciting prophetic word to share with you called Nets and Sickles Get Ready. And it's all about the harvest that God is making us alert to because. Oh, the harvest. Yeah. See that, that billion souls harvest. Joel's army, the one new man there. It, it, we're on the cusp of it, folks. We've been waiting for this moment, and it has finally uh, just about arrived. I mean, we 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 now know when the <laughs> when when the plane is going to land. Apparently, you know, you, you can check the board to see if it's on time. You know, something like that. Um, yeah, this is this is exactly the same kind of behavior that was going on in the days leading up to Todd Bentley's so-called Lakeland revival. Yeah, and then when it broke loose, you know, you know, charismatics from around the globe were flying in, you know, to have their face kicked with a biker boot in order to be cured of cancer and nonsense like that. Um, you get the point. Uh, but this is Patricia King doing her job to, you know, to basically using suggestion, you know, via false prophecy planted in people's minds this expectation. It's just about here. We're just entering in to this amazing time of harvest. The season is changing. There's an atmospheric change in the spirit where we have been in... An atmospheric change in the spirit. How many spirit millibars have uh, changed, uh, you know, as a result of this atmospheric change in the spirit? You know, uh, can we see the millibar meter in the spirit uh, to to verify this atmospheric change? I'd, I'd like to see that, please, Patricia. A maybe 20, 25 year season of where 
we've been getting filled in conferences. We've been getting taught in seminars. We've been coming together as a body, getting blessed in his presence. And all that is great. And it's going to continue. But we are going into a harvest season. And it's already begun. It's a, they're going into it. And it's already started. So, yeah. So pencil it in. It's, it's, it's officially launched somewhere, somehow. Not sure where or you know what she's referring to, but the harvest season—it started now. It's Billy Graham's been dead for a while, you know. He's probably his corpse is already decaying now, you know. So it's got to be now. Uh huh. Yeah. Beware of what's coming in the charismatic movement. It's going to be bonkers. There's different places in the world where it's already happening, where souls are being saved by the thousands and hundreds of thousands even it's already begun it's so exciting by the one million yes yes by the million (laughs) it's 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 already happening but it is time for us to put in our nets and put the sickle to fell the grain Mm -hmm. how exactly do you suggest that i go about putting in my nets because i'm not even sure I know what you're talking about. And in Luke 5, 4, Jesus says, put out into the deep water and let your nets, let down your nets. For- <laughs> Who's the you there? Yeah, see, this is where, you know, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis do literally come into play. She's uh, claiming that she's quoting Luke chapter 5, verse 4. And here's the words of Jesus. Are you ready? Out of context. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Ooh, see? Jesus is telling us that the harvest season is just upon us. There's been an atmospheric shift. It's starting. It's happening. So we got to let down our... No, no, no. The you there is singular, not plural. It doesn't say y'all need to put down, you know, let out in the deep and put down your nets, y'all. No, no, this is talking to a single person. Let me read the context. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Again, three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and yeah, you guessed it, context. So we're just going to add the context. Here we go. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And then he, when he finished, he said to Simon, yeah, that's right, the text says, he said to Simon, he didn't say this to me, he didn't say it to you. He ain't saying it to us. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and you let down your nets. Mm-hmm. So, and let down your nets for a catch. So Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night, took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Mm-hmm. So God ain't talking to us today and telling us, we, we got to let down our nets, man. Nets and sickles and stuff, you know, and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Yeah, no, this is that she's twisting God's word, which is proof positive, once again, as if you needed more proof, that Patricia King 
is a false prophetess. A catch. Okay, so he's referring to an ingathering of souls like, like fish being brought into a net. Yet, no, in that verse, Jesus is actually literally telling Peter to literally let down a literal fishing net from an actual literal boat on the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Lake of Gennesaret. So, um, by the way, this has already occurred. Peter has fulfilled this command, this request of Jesus, and there is nothing further to be fulfilled regarding this. But he also refers to a harvest. And in John 4, 35, he says, Do not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the... This cross-reference in the Gospel of John has nothing to do with Luke 5. You claim to hear directly from God, Patricia. Wow. For they are already white with harvest. So Jesus is saying... Harvest is also speaking of souls coming into the kingdom. So he uses nets and sickles. And especially the internet is going to be used as a special net to bring in the harvest. And God... You have got to be kidding me. See, Jesus says, let down your net. So you got to get on the internet. See, see, it's got the word net in it. and uh, Because the harvest man and stuff. Yeah, this is just utterly duplicitous on her part. And it's just sick that anybody would actually listen to this and think that this is a word from God for right now. It's not. But I think you get the point. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Scott McKenna and Nicole Crank. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Max Holliday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, sign there. Oh dear, I was expecting something a bit larger. Is that all there is? Uh, afraid so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, <laughs> no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. Oh, I do hope I haven't been ordering chia pits in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, this had better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. Hello! If you are watching this, it means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the... Bronze Edition. Bronze Edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. 
I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the Bronze Edition package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. Toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving. Okay. Additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. <laughs> I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my new pad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the Bronze Edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... wait, what? In the Silver Edition... Your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the gold edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. This can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. Yeah! In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's it? Down play button! Oh, oh, wait, there it is! Part 5. Nourishment. In the Bronze Edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold Edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken cordon bleu, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. Complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the silver edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33. Communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver Nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six holy hand grenades, one hideaway moat, and... I can't believe this! 
They didn't say anything about different editions on the website. How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me. What are the shams of these sleazeballs running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church box CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish! Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the charismatic movement and their 
preparations mentally suggesting a great harvest is upon us. It's all manipulation, because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. This says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Uh, this, if you would like to support us, joining our crew is a fantastic way to support us. Uh, there are four ranks in our crew, and you get to pick your rank. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. If you would like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. And, of course, if you'd like to do the the traditional way you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. Sitting in today is Brian McLaren, and a special guest over there on the timpani drums is uh, the Reverend Scott McKenna. This is their avant-garde rendition of also Sprock Zarathustra. By Strauss, and this uh, this is just led by the Spirit. Listen as it just builds to this crescendo. It's amazing, you know, having been set free from the modernist definition of notes. Li- li- listen in. Cutting edge. So, yeah, whatever. Okay, so we're heading over to the Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church out there in Scotland, and the Reverend Scott McKenna, uh, the sermon from this uh, last Sunday, last Sunday, not this one, uh, is, uh, desi- is entitled Satan Really? And uh, the Reverend Scott McKenna, unlike Jesus Christ, doesn't believe in the devil. Isn't that just, you know? Crazy talk. Anyway, here's uh, Scott McKenna as he's going to try to convince us from the pulpit that Satan doesn't exist. And there's a specific reason why he believes Satan doesn't exist. It has to do with uh, the nature of, uh, of Scripture itself. But uh, let's head in and listen to McKenna. Here we go. Let us pray. Eternal Ruach, breath of God. Bless our meditations, nourish our imagination, and fill us to overflowing with the peace, the shalom of your spirit. 
Yeah, peace with God only comes through the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who reconciled us to the Father through his shed blood on the cross, which is a vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. You know, just saying. Amen. In the Gospel of St. Mark, the scribes of Jerusalem accused Jesus of demonic possession. He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Jesus challenged the scribes. How can Satan cast out Satan? Do you believe in satanic possession, in the power of Satan? Well, you know, Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. See Matthew chapter 4. And, uh, you know, when you read the Gospels, he actually cast demons and unclean spirits out of people. You think of the demoniacs of the Gerasenes and, uh, you know, who had the the legion of demons. Um, so, and those were all eyewitness accounts. Um, a book you might want to check out, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, uh, you know. Uh, Bacham and uh, yeah, by Bacham. That's it's a great book. It's a fantastic book, which shows that the uh, the New Testament itself is um, eyewitness testimony. It's historical narrative. Yeah. Do you believe in demons? Yeah, Jesus did, and they talked to him and stuff. And Jesus cast them out of people, and you know stuff. In the Book of Revelation, in the prophetic. Poetry of mythology, the, author- uh, the, the, the the prophetic poetry of mythology. See, there you go. There's your false narrative. Yeah, the narrative of the left, of the liberals, the emergence, the uh, the modernist liberals as well, is that the Bible is mythological, mythological narrative. Yes, not historical. It's just myth. It's just myth. It's the same as Star Wars, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah. You see, Jesus, in, you know, and stuff like that, this is legendary stories, mythological tales, like, you know, the tale of Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and stuff, yeah. Wrote, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and... Yeah, Revelation, by the way, is apocalyptic literature. Not myth, it's apocalyptic. Yeah, it's, you know, you know kind of these nice, interesting, bizarre word pictures that are, you know, represent things. ...and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years had ended. Earlier, we are told that the dragon was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Yeah, in the book of Revelation, again, word pictures, you know, not historical narrative there. Today's lesson began with the suggestion that Jesus was out of his mind. In our society, if we went around speaking 
of a fallen angel, a dragon, the devil, Satan, and demonic possession, many would think that we, think us, mentally ill. Uh, Yeah, that's not the reason why people thought that Jesus was mentally ill. And it was his family, by the way, and it wasn't because he was out there casting out demons and stuff. Yeah, no. Out of our mind. In the Gospel of Luke, when the 70 apostles returned to Jesus, having fulfilled their mission, when they returned with joy that they had cast out demons, Jesus himself told them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. In the Christian tradition, the ancient serpent... Yeah, Jesus said he saw Satan. Yeah, okay, because he did, you know. ...of Revelation is the serpent of Genesis, which enticed Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the centre of the Garden of Eden. In the Jewish Talmud, Satan has a central role in the gruesome story of the binding of Isaac. Yeah, but in the biblical text, Satan has no function whatsoever regarding the binding of Isaac. Talmud is extra-biblical. Talmud comes from the Pharisees and their so-called oral tradition that they claimed was the second Torah. And in some, for some, it was Satan who led the Hebrew people astray when Moses prayed on Mount Sinai. Do you believe in the existence of Satan? Yes, Jesus did, does... So I would be kind of silly to contradict him. Peter believed in demons and stuff. So did John and Matthew and whoever the gospel of Mark is written by, you know, Mark, no, John Mark, right? So yeah, these, these, all these fellows believed in the demonic and stuff. And the eyewitnesses who hung out with Jesus, they actually watched him cast out demons. Why is this so difficult for Scott McKenna? Uh, Because Scott McKenna is a scoffer. He has put higher value on so-called science and their conclusions and stuff like that and natural laws and, you know, and pitted against the the scriptures and has concluded that the scriptures have come up short. And so we're just going to dismiss it all using a very clever technique that liberals engage in. Here's the technique. In the power of Satan... Much of the language in Scripture is the poetic prose of mythology. Mm -hmm. Poetic prose of mythology. So the devil doesn't exist because all the every single time you see this is this is how this narrative works, you know. So therefore, every single time the devil appears, uh, that's not real. No, no, that that's not history. That's poetic mythology. Nonsense. There's nothing in the text that would say that's poetic mythology. Uh huh. All of the accounts of Christ casting out the demons from demoniacs is part of the eyewitness testimony in his historical narrative. It is faith narrative. The literal reading of scripture is a lethal trap. The church seems caught. Oh, it's a trap. Don't, don't, don't literally read the scripture. By the way, Of course, there are certain passages of Scripture that you are not to read literally because 
it's true poetry. Like, for instance, in the Psalms, when it poetically describes God as having wings and, you know, covering us in a, in, 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 under his wings. Or Jesus, when he you know, sees Jerusalem and weeps over, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, you who stoned the prophets would that you would, you know, but you wouldn't, you know, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. See, that's figure of speech. Jesus, if you were to say, well, see that, we got to take it literally. Therefore, Jesus was like the big chicken man. Yet, no, no, the genre of the passage in question tells you, you know, how to work with the text. Historical narrative is historical narrative. He's engaging in a game here. Steel jaws, unable to free itself. In the 13th century, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides said that he did not believe that Satan existed out there, up there. Yeah, Maimonides, Jewish philosopher. What about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? He believed in the devil, you know. Satan, he said, derives from the Hebrew root meaning turn away. Satan is a symbol of sin. Uh, No, he's the origin of it. (sighs) Yeah. It's a symbol of turning away from God. In the book of Job, in which God and Satan speak to each other, yeah. Maimonides said that this is nothing more than a parable. Uh-huh. Yeah, but then again, you know, it's just kind of strange that, you know, the historical narratives there in the Gospels, you know, that Jesus actually runs into the demons and stuff. And it's all written in historical narrative, which and eyewitness testimony, which is not myth. So, yeah, that's how the liberals play the game. Yeah, it, it can't be true. So every time a passage comes up, oh, that's mythology. That's a parable. That's a this. That's a that. With no regard for what the actual genre of the passage is. That doesn't matter. Their narrative is these things are not possible. Therefore, whenever you show them from Scripture... No, 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 dude, you're you're in total error. They just say, no, nope, that's just myth. Because they will not allow their narrative to be challenged. The narrative of the miracles aren't possible and all this kind of nonsense. So Scott McKenna should not be in a pulpit anywhere. He is an actual agent of the devil himself. The very devil that he denies exists. Yeah, just saying. Moving along. I didn't know you was going to start out with Looking for a city built above Looking for a city Where I'll never die Where the same in millions Never say goodbye There we'll meet our Savior And our love was true Oh, 
Amen. Yeah, worst singer in church ever. So we're uh, heading over to Nicole Crank's Faith Church, St. Louis, where she preached on Father's Day. Yeah, what a treat. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, yeah, and this twisting of scripture is just bizarre. I mean, not only is she a woman, which absolutely forbids her from preaching a sermon. She clearly doesn't know what she's doing in ha- and as far as how to handle God's word correctly. Here's uh, Nicole Crank. When your world gets rocked, here we go. On this Father's Day, I want to just talk about something that deals with fathers, deals with families, deals with single people. It kind of crosses all borders. Do you know what that is? How to make a decision when your world gets rocked. You're- yeah, wow. I mean, thank God Christianity came along and, you know, and the Bible has taught us how to make decisions when our world gets rocked and stuff. Your world ever been rocked? I want to hear all campuses. If your world has ever been rocked, say yes. Yes. And was it planned? No. No. No, no, no. We never plan this world-rocking mess that happens. Never. And so we're going to be in Matthew 14. If you've got your Bible today, you can open that up. We'll start around verse 24. And as you're turning right there, I wanted to just have you reflect on how early in life, I'm asking Pastor Paul, Pastor Phil, Pastor Austin, campus pastors, think about this with us in your, in your uh, auditoriums today. What's the earliest in life your world ever got rocked? And I was thinking about that as I was writing this message. And I realized my world had been rocked before I had ever been born. My dad gave me up. I was born in Canada. And dad never came to see me. Wanted nothing to do with me. And completely gave me up. And I didn't even realize that as a baby. As a baby, you don't know this stuff. But until later in life. Everybody say later in life. So some of the things that I want to talk about today. Maybe happened to you back in the day. But your world's still rocking a little bit right now. If you can identify something that happened to you before, but still affects you some right now, say amen. 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 So I really, you know, had these holes in my life thinking somebody didn't want me. Well, you know, it's really interesting because at three years old, my dad adopted me here in the U.S. And I think it's funny how we get hung up on who didn't want us. Instead of getting hung up on what God did for us. Because he didn't have to love me. The man who adopted me, the man I called dad, he didn't have to love me. I wasn't born to him and he's like, well, you're here, so I'm going to have to love you. No, he chose to love me. And I want to let you know, I don't know what has rocked your world in the past, but there is a family of origin and there is a family of choice. And today you are seated with your family of choice. And we choose you. What what text are you preaching from again here? We're learning a lot about you. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, which I think you're supposed to be preaching from at the moment, is all about Jesus, not, not you. Love you and your heavenly father loves you. So no matter how your world was rocked, look at your neighbor and say, don't rock me like a hurricane. You remember that song? Here I am. Rock you like a hurricane. This this is sermon that was preached at Faith Church on Father's Day. 
Oh, what a treat. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I missed a world in the rock career. Probably not. No. But let's talk about getting rocked by a hurricane. And <laughs> ah! Let's talk about getting rocked by a hurricane. Okay. Matthew 14. And Matthew 14, you've got the... Uh, that's Zechariah. That's not Matthew. Um, in Matthew 14, you've got the disciples. And they are out on this ocean. They're out on this sea, on the sea, and they're crossing this lake, this body of water, and they're getting rocked by what seems like a hurricane. That, that would be the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me, let's uh, read the, um, the text here and add in some of the relevant data. Uh, just do a quick exegesis. Matthew uh, 14, 22. Immediately, uh, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And this is right after, by the way, the feeding of the 5,000. Get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat uh, by this time was long from the land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart! And the Greek says, I am. It says, Ego me. That, by the way, is Jesus invoking the name of God given to Moses from the burning bush. And Moses said to burning bush, who should I say sent me? And speaking from the burning bush, Jesus says, I am. That's my name. I am. So Jesus says, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. That's literally what the Greek says. So Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, Peter doesn't believe him. Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And that's the punchline. The end result is that the disciples worshipped Jesus and confess him to be the Son of God. You, you think that's going to be the emphasis that uh, Nicole Crank makes in this sermon? If you think that's the emphasis she's going to put on this, uh, well, you're going to be disappointed. And as they're going across, doing something God told them to do, did you know you could do something God told you to do and still get rocked? They're doing something God told them to do. They get out on the boat, and they've been out on the boat for a while. That said that there were many furlongs in verse 24 and 25. They were many furlongs out into the water. And it was between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, and the boat was being beaten, and the boat was being tossed. And I'm thinking, well, if it's between 3 and 6 a.m., they probably didn't leave at 3 a.m. They probably left at 10 o'clock at night, maybe before the sun went down. So they'd been getting beaten up for a while. Everybody, all campuses say, for a while. Do you feel like you've been beaten up for a while? Well, I'm telling you right now. Do you feel like you've been beaten up for a while? I wasn't on this boat. So notice here that the this historical narrative, this 
eyewitness testimony, this real event, is now being allegorized <laughs> into, you know, uh, it's just really a parable of what it's like to go through being rocked when, you know, hurricanes come in your life. You know, here I am. Rock you like a hurricane. You see, that that's really the whole point. It doesn't matter if it really happened or not. It's just a symbolic story about, you know, the, the storms and the hurricanes in your life that are rocking you. Get ready. I think somebody's coming for you. Think somebody's coming for you. Come on, somebody. They're not sure. You think he's coming for you? I'm not talking about Freddy Krueger. <laughs> I'm talking about Jesus. You see, we serve the God of the impossible. And he's so good at doing the impossible. And so we serve the God of the impossible. What does that mean? They've been beaten all day long and they're all night long and they're freaking out. And when they saw him in verse 26, it said they were terrified. They were terrified when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And I'm like, why were you terrified? I'm sure Jesus the had... The text says because they thought they saw a ghost. It's right there. It's right there in the text. <laughs> they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. That's why they were terrified. They thought they were having a supernatural encounter with a deceased human being, a dead spirit. That's what the text literally says. How could you ask the question, why are they scared? Jesus is the God of the impossible. The text says why they were scared. You don't even have to guess. Thinking, well, this is not the response I expected. I kind of expected them to go like, you go, boy. Woo, woo. But instead, they're terrified. Jesus had been doing the impossible all day long. Jesus had been doing the impossible. Oh, boy. So n notice that... Uh, if <clears throat> Nicole Crank is one of these people who buys into the word of faith heresy. Your words create your reality. And so as part of the narrative of their false theology, it's important that you, signs and wonders, you got you, you, God is the God of the impossible. Yeah, that's kind of a weird abstract concept. And so then yeah, are you in need of the impossible in your life? You know, to be wealthy, healthy, wise, whatever. Don't worry, God specializes in the impossible. That's not the point of this text. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing and trusting in him, being brought to penitent faith in Christ, we would have eternal life. That's the, that's the thesis, you know, kind of concept of, of the Gospels themselves. And so this is all te these texts all tell the story of Christ so that we would believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, salvation, and that he is an ever-present help in time of need. God is, by the way, that. See, if you back up a few scriptures, it tells you what they did all day. And here's what the day looked like. Right before he sent them out, he said, I'm going alone to pray. So Jesus goes up uh, by himself to talk to his dad, to talk to Father God. And I imagine the conversation went like this. God's like, hey, son, how was your day? Because parents always say that, right? So notice uh, she's using her imagination at this point. Yeah, that's just kind of just weird. Don't you think that uh, her imagination is now becoming a main point in this so-called sermon? Mm -hmm. Since when did imagination make it so that you can fill in the gaps in Scripture? If, if the Scriptures wanted us to know 
what Jesus prayed, it would have recorded his prayer for us. But it doesn't. So we've got a big problem here, and that is is that she's literally adding to the text and doing so openly by saying that the, the, she imagines she she imagines that uh, this is how this conversation between Jesus and the Father went down. How was your day? And so he's like, oh, man, Father God, it was awesome. You see, we were there. We had church by this lake. Like 10,000 people showed up. 5,000 men plus the women and children. God's like, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, there were tons of sick people there. I healed every one of them. Some guy came in, had no leg. I prayed for a boot leg. Other guy, man, he couldn't, he said he'd been bent over like this. Couldn't find a chiropractor anywhere. I straightened him up. He was straight. Some guy had leprosy. Half of his flesh had been eaten away. I prayed for him. He had flesh. Father God's like, I'm so proud of you, Jesus. That's incredible. What else? He's like, well, you know people. After I healed everybody, they were hungry. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. No, no, it's a laugh lines here. In this. Wow, yeah. I want to eat after church. So they, and God said, okay, what'd you feed them? He's like, well, there were only five loaves and two fishes. God says, what'd you do? multiplied them, fed everybody, collected 12 baskets when I was done, and you should have seen their faces. (laughs) So here he is doing the five loaves and two fishes, healing every sick person he can find. He's doing the impossible all day long. So when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, why are they surprised that he's doing the impossible? They're not. They're not surprised he's doing the impossible. Again, exegesis actually requires you to do something you learned in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the skill that you learned in fourth grade is called, remember this? Remember, it's called reading comprehension. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the best part about the Bible is, is that if you're not sure, it's an open book test. Yeah, so... If we, if we were to put on one of those bubble scantron tests, you know. So according to, you know, the story of Jesus walking in the water and Peter walking on the water found in Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. What was the reason the disciples were afraid? A, they were afraid because they saw the Loch Ness Monster. B, they were afraid because they were they thought Jesus was a ghost. C, I don't know. D, all of the above. Which would it be? I mean, this is basic reading comprehension. Verse 26, open book test. <laughs> they said, it's a ghost. They thought Jesus was a ghost. See, yeah, this, this is not hard. But apparently this is really difficult for Nicole Crank. Let me ask you this. What are some of the impossible things that you've seen God do for you? Uh, There's there's no fixing this. This uh, sermon is broken beyond repair. Uh, There is no Christian value to it whatsoever. No exegetical sound doctrinal value to it whatsoever. This is just a hot mess of nonsense, which I'm pretty clear at this point uh, most evangelicals want it that way. Uh, yeah, because otherwise, why on earth would they be uh, listening to people that are as patently absurd and egregiously, you know, incapable of even the remotest semblance of sound biblical exegesis? So, 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a Rick Warren sermon. It's a little long. We might shorten it up. But doing the proper distinction of law and gospel. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Your words have no power to create reality. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Donna Rick Warren sermon. And uh, Rick Warren is a little long in what he does. So uh, we probably will not make it through this in its entirety. But uh, listening to a large portion of it, we're going to do a focus in on what the Bible teaches as far as how to properly understand law and gospel. But uh, let's do this right. Hey, ho! 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Saddleback Church. Rick Warren presiding. The name of the message is How to Keep Your Tank Filled Up Instead of Running on Empty. Which, of course, the question that people should be asking is, is this an actual biblical topic? You know, is this something that God wants us to believe? Which part of Scripture teaches this? But uh, we're going to note that uh, Rick Warren is one of these fellows that is, um, well, he's got a lot to say as far as what you're supposed to do. He has very little to say about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Rick Warren is ultimately a law preacher, and that's the problem. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's uh, Rick Warren and... How to keep your tank filled up instead of running on empty. Here we go. Today I want us to conclude the Living on a Margin series. Um, I read this this week. A pet store delivery truck was making its rounds. And each time it came to a stoplight, the driver would get out, take a two-by-four, and start banging on the side of his truck. After seeing it happen a couple of times, another man stopped and asked him, said, what are you doing? He explained, well, this is only a two-ton truck, and I'm carrying four tons of canaries. So I have to keep two tons of them in the air all the time. <laughs> Some of you are like that truck driver. <laughs> you need to lighten your load. And that's why we've been doing this series on living on a margin that I've been having uh, our pastors teach you. I gave them the material to, to teach. I gave them the, the principles. And I said, I want you to deliver uh, this to our family because we, we all need it. Now, I want to begin with a little survey. Okay. My first question is, um, how low do you let your gas tank typically get before you refill it? Now, notice... Um, he ain't starting off in a biblical text. We're starting off with analogy, you know, because literal running out of gas is now going to turn into a metaphor about, you know, letting your life get thin, you know, as far as gas in your allegorical metaphorical tank. Okay. Okay. How many of you would say, I only let mine get down to about a quarter empty and then I, I refill it. Can I see your hands? Oh, you're just so spiritual. Okay, all right. <laughs> ba 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 to you. Okay, all right. How many say uh, when it hits half full, then I, I refill? Okay, all right. Good. How many of you say I wait till it's three quarters empty and then I refill? I right, go in. All right. Some of you are just lying. Okay, okay. And how about the rest of you who would say, well, then I wait till it gets five miles past empty. Can I see your hands? Yeah, look at this. All right. Okay, next question. Next question. How many of you have ever run out of gas? Okay, if you've run out of gas, I want you to stand up right now. I want you to just see you. If you've ever run out of gas, look at all these people. All these people have run out of gas. All right, thank you. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, I would like to ask, third question, would any of you like to tell us why you ran out of gas? <laughs> I want to give you 10 reasons 
we run out of gas. I want you to write these down because every one of them parallel your spiritual life, your emotional life, your relational life. Yeah, so again, we're in the wisdom of the world here. This is not... This isn't some kind of biblical thing here because he ain't preaching a biblical text. He's all about, you know, solving relevant problems that you experience in your life. And so people run out of gas in their tanks and they experience burnout and things like that. So he's going to solve that problem. The job of a pastor, though, is to preach the word. He ain't doing that. Financial life, every one of them parallel uh, uh situations in your life. Ten reasons why we run out of gas. Because can you run out of gas emotionally? Of course you can. Spiritually, of course you can. Can you run out of gas in a relationship? Yep. Can you run out of gas financially? Yep. So every one of these ten reasons why cars run out of gas actually parallel why you run out of gas in your life and why you need to live on a margin. So write these down. Number one, uh, the first reason you run out of gas is not starting out with a full tank. Now, we talked in this series one session, Pastor Buddy, we talked about how you start your day sets your day. And if you don't start your day with... Yeah, Pastor Buddy said that, but not Jesus, not the disciples. Where I mean, this is just worldly wisdom. And you're going to note that if you buy into this, you're already taking notes and creating a to-do list of things that you're supposed to do. Now, here's the issue, is that Rick Warren is delivering this in the context of a quote-unquote church service, the sermon to be exact, so everybody there is there under the assumption that they expect to hear something from God. So by preaching and teaching this stuff from the stage or the pulpit, Rick Warren is creating the impression that this is God's will for them. And what is it called when you do not obey the will of God? That's called sin. So note, he's going to lay a heavy burden on them of things that they need to do. To thing, something you need to do is called a command. Uh-huh. That's law. Now, let's do a little bit of work in uh, the biblical text. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, the Apostle Paul kind of coming to a conclusion on, a, on, on an argument. Not, you know, it's an argument. He's building a case. You know, he's making a point. In conclusion of his argument, Paul you know, makes this point, and that is uh, Romans 3.9. So what then, are we Jews any better off? You know, no, not at all. For we have already charged that, bo- that all, both Jews and Greeks, they are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being 
will be justified. That means to be declared righteous in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So now we get into, you know, we talk about what the the proper uses of God's law are. And Scripture uses God's law lawfully in three ways. The first is to show us our sin, and that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to here, is that God's law shows us, gives us a knowledge of our sin. Now, we also learn from passages like Romans 13 that God's law is used to curb evil, and and that use of the law is used by governments. The third use of the law is that is what God's law shows us what a good work is. And the third use of the law is only for Christians, and it has to be preached carefully. And what I mean by that is, is that it must always be preached in the context that your right standing before God is accomplished solely by grace through faith alone, and that true saving faith will result in good works. It will not result in sinless perfection. It will result in you daily mortifying your sinful flesh and good works coming through, bearing the gifts of you know, the fruit of the Spirit. So the problem, though, is, is that Rick Warren, when he preaches law, 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 you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, in the context of a church service, he's making it clear this is God's will for you, which then will create necessarily confusion if you don't preach the law properly and then also preach the gospel. It will leave people with a list of things that they are to do and the tacit belief that in order to please God and have a right standing with him, I must be doing these things. So it starts wandering into, by necessity, into the realm of justification where people believe that their standing before God is based upon their application and their obedience to these commands. But that's not how it works. The gospel tells us what Christ has done for us. Salvation is completely a gift by grace through faith, and that Christians are saved unto good works. And when we preach God's law, we need to, we, it always needs to be balanced with the gospel. In fact, the gospel needs to kind of predominate so that people do not despair nor, uh, you know, unfortunately come to the conclusion that somehow their ongoing right standing before God is based upon their keeping of commandments. Now, Rick here isn't even giving us biblical commandments. He's just giving us worldly wisdom from the context of a sermon, which then makes it appear as if this worldly wisdom is the actual will of God. And when you do not do what God wills, you are sinning. Tank, you're going to be running on empty by the end of the day. You have to start your day with a full tank, emotionally, spiritually, and that's why you need time with the Lord. Okay, number two, second reason we run out of gas, being too busy to pause and refuel. Now, we've all done this. You're in a hurry. You're busy, and you know you need to get gas, but you think, I'll just push it a little bit further because I don't have time to pause. I don't have, I'm already late for this appointment. I don't have time to stop and get gas. And when you're too busy to pause and refuel, uh, you're going to run out of gas. Now, that's true in your life. If you don't have a regular period of refueling spiritually, refueling um, emotionally, re refueling, renewing your relationships, you're going to run out of gas. Okay, number three, unaware of hidden leaks. 
that are draining me. You can run out of gas if you don't know there are some leaks in your gas tank. And that certainly has parallels to your life. That there are often hidden leaks in your life that are draining you all the time. And that's Yeah, this the leaks in your theology are clearly draining me, Rick. I you're running on empty. Now, there are two big categories of hidden leaks, relationships and responsibilities. Everybody here could give an example of how a relationship has drained you. Sometimes they're not hidden, but sometimes they are. And you don't realize what a drain this particular relationship is having on you, how it's sapping you of your energy, your creativity, your strength. Uh, your walk with the Lord and all these things. Relationships can be hidden, hidden leaks in your life. And so can responsibilities. And the more you've got, the more possible leaks. So the more responsibilities you've got, um, the more is likely you're going to spring a leak in one of those. And that's going to drain your tank and you're going to be running on empty. Okay, here's the fourth one. Ignoring the owner's manual. And pushing my car farther than it was created to go. If you pick up that owner's manual, which you have never read. It's still there in your glove compartment. (laughs) And you've never ever looked at it. And you've owned your car for five years. It'll tell you how far your tank will take you. And it will tell you how far that car was designed to go even on regular or uh, supreme or whatever gas you're putting in, in your car. And they've tested it over and over and over and over. And the creators, the manufacturers, the designers know exactly how far your, your car will go given how many miles per gallon it's going to get and how many gallons you've got in your tank. And I don't care how much faith you've got, your tank isn't going to get any bigger. I believe I have a bigger tank. I know it says it'll only go this many miles, but I believe it was all the faith in the world isn't going to give you a bigger tank. It's got the tank that the creator gave it. Now, this is your owner's manual for life, the Bible. And the Bible tells you what you can and can't do with your life. If you ignore the owner's manual, the Bible tells you what you can and can't do. Law, law, law. That, by the way, the Bible, is far more than just law. The Bible it contains the story of God's redemptive acts in history, culminating in the you know the incarnation, vicarious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's gospel. That doesn't tell us what to do. That gives us good news to believe in our salvation and our right standing with God is based on faith, not works. So notice that Rick Warren is talking about the Bible as if it's merely law. So here's the issue. So here's Rick Warren preaching law, la la la, la 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 and not some of it isn't even like biblical commandments and law. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. But you look at your life and you're sitting there going, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. And this is in the context of a church sermon and now you think, well, oh no, God is upset with me. Well, when you sin, what is the solution to your sin? Try harder? 
dedicate yourself to the task, really pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get it right this time? Is that the solution to your sin? No. The biblical solution for your sin is to repent and to trust in the mercies of Christ, be forgiven, and then daily bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So Rick Warren, he's going to preach la, 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 la. Solution to you not following the la, 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 la is you doing harder. You finally saying, I'm fed up. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. He's literally going to say that by the time we get to about halfway through the sermon itself. You're going to run out of gas. And all over the world, in every culture, people are emotionally running out of gas, relationships are dying, careers are dying, dreams are dying, because they're not paying attention to the owner's manual. Dreams are dying, oh no, gasp, where's the dream graveyard? That's nonsense. God gave you a certain size tank, and you just have to live with that fact. And if you ignore it, well, you just ignore it to your own detriment. Yeah. Where does it talk about the size of my tank and God determining the size of my tank in Scripture? I would like to see those passages in context, please, Rick. But ignoring the owner's manual, pushing my car further than it was created to go, pushing your body further than it was created to go, pushing your mind further than it was created to go, pushing your emotions further than God created them to go means you're going to... You're going to run out of energy. For instance, in this book, it says uh, every seven days you take a day off. That's one of the commandments. That's law. That's so important. God put it right there in the big 10. It's in the 10 commandments right along with don't murder and don't commit adultery. It says every seventh day you take a day off. Are you breaking the 10 commandments? Now, it's not a day off. Yeah, if you're breaking the Ten Commandments, you are in need of a Savior. Remember what we read in Romans. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, we continue then. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. This is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded on what kind of law? Based on the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that we maintain that one is justified. That means to be declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So you start to see this proper distinction between law and gospel, its proper function and its role. 
The law is never given in order to make us righteous before God is to convict us of our sin, show us our need for a Savior, so that we might be saved by faith. And then by faith, God gives us the strength then to hold, guard, keep his law, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. That's what the scriptures teach. But Rick Warren here is egregiously confusing law and gospel and preaching super heavy-handed law, and the solution is not going to be Christ and him crucified for our sins and you repenting and believing and trusting in him and bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. The solution is going to be literally you need to get fed up and finally start making a difference and change your life. That's not Christian sanctification. That's something completely different. Not a Sabbath. If on your Sabbath you're, you've got your honeydew list and you're trying to catch up with all the stuff you didn't get done the other six days. A, a Sabbath is for rest, rest your body, refresh your soul in worship, renew your relationships, revitalize your life. That's what a Sabbath is for. All that's a part of it. Recreation can be a part of your Sabbath. Worship is a part of your Sabbath. Rest is a part of your Sabbath. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go home and take a nap. Because God says, you're wired. Did you know that every seven days your heart beats just a little bit different? Studies have shown that. Did you know that during the the French Revolution, they outlawed the Sabbath in France because they're trying to get rid of everything Christian. Uh, And within a few years, they had to restore it because of the health of the nation plummeted. It literally fell apart. So they had to restore the day of rest. That's in the owner's manual. If you ignore it, your tank isn't going to get any bigger. It's not going to go any further. And if you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. All right. Uh, Number five, Uh, a fifth reason we run out of gas is hurry, hurry, because the faster I drive, you know, this, the faster you run out of gas. If you're driving 80 miles an hour, you're going to use up a whole lot more gas than if you're driving 40 miles an hour, driving fast, waste gas, hurry in your life, depletes your emotions, your spirit, your energy, your body. What's the speed of your life right now? What's the speed of your life right now? If you're going at record speed, you're like a speedboat or a race car. You're burning fuel, emotional fuel, spiritual fuel, mental fuel, much, much faster than if your pace was a little bit slower. That's why in the very first message in this, we talked about, I I did that message on uh, slowing the pace to make the space for margin. Uh, in- Slowing the pace to make the space, that's a command. That's law. It's not even biblical law, but it's law. Notice all we're getting from Rick. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. La, lots and law. Would you like some law with your law? Yeah. We're not hearing anything about Christ and him crucified for our sins. Life. Hurry. It can cause you to run out of gas faster. Okay, number six. Uh, a sixth reason we, we run out of gas is being distracted and not watching my gauges. 
Now, they're right there in front of you, and you can see the gauges on oil and on water and radiator and on your gas tank. Uh, and they're there. Maybe either you're not watching them because you're distracted, or maybe you don't believe them. And you look at it, and it says empty. You go, I don't really believe that. It's not really empty. You know, maybe it's broken and wishful thinking. And uh, when you don't watch the gauges in your life, that are the warning signs that you're going too fast or going too far or you're not recharging, you're not renewing, you're not, you're going to end up in the ditch. So what are uh, the gauges you need to watch? Oh, there are lots of them. Um, sleep is a gauge. Are you getting enough sleep? That's a gauge. And if you're not getting enough sleep, that's a warning light in your line saying, danger, Will Robinson, you, you need to watch out. You're not getting enough sleep. You know, for me, I've noticed weight is a gauge. And that when I'm overstressed or I'm trying to do too much, I put on weight. It's a clear thing. Now, right now, I happen to be, they've been, testing a bunch of medicines on my brain and some of them are, they said, you're going to gain a bunch of weight. Oh, great. That gives me a great excuse. Good. Thanks. (laughs) But the moment I'm off of them, I have no more excuse. But weight can can be, uh, irritability is a gauge that you're going too fast or you're trying to go too far or you're trying to do too much. If you're irritable and the people closest to you, your friends, your spouse, Kids, co-workers say, man, you're really touchy. You're really irritable. That is a warning light. That's a gauge you should be watching. That if you're overly irritable, you're not getting enough input. You know, in, um, in, in Israel, there are two great lakes. In the northern part of Israel is the Sea of Galilee. And in the southern part of Israel is the Dead Sea. And between those two lakes is a river called the Jordan River. And it runs out of the Sea of Galilee in the north and empties into the sea, the Dead Sea in the south. The Sea of Galilee is a beautiful lake. They still do professional. By the way, merely referencing the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is not the equivalent of actually preaching a biblical text, although both are in the Bible. Yeah, and just pointing that out. Watching on it, it's vibrant, it's alive, it has a lot of life in it. Uh, there's farming around it, and there's fish in the sea, in the ocean, I mean, or in the lake. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a beautiful lake. Uh, but the Dead Sea literally is dead. There's nothing living in it. And it's full of salt, and full of all kinds of minerals and chemicals, and it's so so dense it's buoyant you can't actually sink in the dead sea i've gone swimming in the dead sea and you get out there and you're just so buoyant because there's so much salt it's more briny than the ocean what's the difference between a living sea of galilee and a dead sea the the sea of galilee takes in and it just gives and it gives out the dead sea just takes in You have to have a balance in your life of taking in and giving out, taking in and giving out. But when you have more giving out than you are taking in, that's called stress. And when your personal life is outpaced by your professional life on the balance, that's called stress. And you're setting yourself up for burn. And when you preach nothing but commandments, that's called confusing law and gospel. 
which is what he's doing here. This is all law. And overload and a lot of other things. So being distracted, not watching your gauges. Uh, relationships can be a good gauge on am I trying to do too much, too fast, too soon. Um, as I said, impatience, how patient are you, things like that. Number seven, a, a seventh cause of running on empty is uh, simply being overloaded. You're carrying too much weight, like that story of the guy who's carrying four tons of canaries in a two-ton truck. The more I carry, the sooner I'm going to run out of gas. The heavier load you are carrying, the more the dial is going to go down faster. And you're lying to yourself when you say, well, I can handle this. I just took on another project. I just took on another relationship. I just took on another commitment. And, and you can't keep, you can get so many irons in the fire, you put out the fire. So you can be overloaded. And the more overloaded you are, the more you're going, your gas tank's going to be depleted faster. I remember years ago, uh, I wanted to take my kids when they were real young to Tahoe on a vacation. And we had a staff member in the church who had a trailer. And it just so happened that my truck had a trailer hitch on it. So he offered to loan me his trailer. And so we loaded up the kids and we headed off to Tahoe. And I, I didn't remember that the more weight that I was pulling with that trailer behind me, the fewer miles per gallon I was going to get. Because it, it takes more gas to pull more weight. And I'm heading up the grapevine, Highway 5, north of L.A., up that steep, steep climb. And there's a strong wind gust coming the other way. Pushing. And I can see the gauge going, about that fast. And I'm going, it's a long way to Gorman. <laughs> if you've ever been up there. And sure enough, I just watched it go, and there was nothing I could do, and I ran out of gas on the freeway, and I had to hike up uh, the, you know, the, the Grapevine Mountains to get up to Gorman and, and then get back. By the time I got there, I was the one who was depleted because of all that and carrying the gas back. So when, you, when you're overloaded, you're going you're gonna to run out of gas sooner, okay? Uh, number eight. An eighth reason we run out of gas is pressure to do it now. Pressure to do it now. In other words, rapid acceleration waste gas. You know that. You know the guy when you're at the stoplight and the hot rider over next to you, he's going, vroom, vroom, vroom. And, and, and as soon as the light turns green. So notice all of these things that he's talking about have to do with like literal gas tanks and literal vehicles and cars and and stuff like that, and and he's allegorizing it to apply to some kind of principle about us needing margin in our lives, and doing so without a biblical passage at all. I mean, have we really even heard God's word yet? I can't, not in any substantive way, and not in any con in any in context. All of this is just worldly wisdom. He, he puts the pedal to the metal. He just wasted a whole lot of gas. Rapid acceleration, waste gas. This happens in your life. When you got something to do and you're trying to do it too fast, 
Your gauge, your emotional gauge, your spiritual gauge, your mental gauge, your relational gauge, they're just going like this real quick. They're all going because you're trying to do it too fast. You're putting the pedal to the metal. You're, you're pushing it. You're, you're trying to um, um, do it faster than you should normally do it. So rapid acceleration waste gas. Number nine. This is, hits close to home. Pride. Pride can cause my tank to get empty. Why? Because I'm assuming the limits of my tank don't apply to me. And some of you, you think you're Superman. I can do it. I can handle it. And you think that none of the laws of nature, none of the laws of God, none of the ways that God wired us with our bodies and our minds and emotions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the only thing we've heard from the Bible is the commandment that we need to keep the Sabbath day. That's pretty much it at this point. Uh, Really apply to you. And it's really arrogance. Ego will cause you to get an empty tank real quick. Don't you think it's ego that's driving Rick Warren to think he knows better than God as far as what should be in the middle of a sermon in a church service when Christians have gathered to hear from God? Nothing will drain you faster than arrogance and ego and pride because you think, I can do it, I can, I can go, and you're pushing, 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 and then you're eventually going to hit the wall because you didn't stop to refill. And then finally, number 10. Number 10 is when you have no margin. In other words, not allowing time to fill up. And that's what we're talking about in this series, where you don't have any time. You, you, you didn't make enough time. You knew you were low on gas, but you didn't leave early enough for that appointment that you could actually stop and refill. And so you rush out the door in a car with an empty tank or near empty tank, and that lack of margin, you didn't plan a buffer, you didn't plan a little extra time so you get gas, and so you're going to run out of gas. Where in the Bible does God command me to you create margin? Now, in looking at those ten things, many of you, I know, you're running on empty. You're running on empty because I can see it in your faces. And I can see it the way you walk into a church service. They're running on empty. Don't you think you should be worried about their eternal soul, you know, and sin and repentance and the forgiveness of sins and true Christian sanctification? I mean, is is margin one of the gifts of the Spirit now? One of the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, margin, self-control. You see what I'm saying here? What... What are you preaching? And am I sanct- more holy and sanctified and fulfilling the will of God if I apply these gasoline margin metaphors to my life? How you doing? I'm okay, Pastor Rick. Yeah, right. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah, by the way, lying is one of the breaking of the commandments. Again, we're hearing a lot of law here. And, 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 and people say, how you doing? Oh, great. Under the circumstances, well, what are you doing under them? <laughs> circumstances are like a mattress. You get on top, you rest easy. You get underneath them, you're going to suffocate. So the reason I wanted to do this whole series, and if you missed any in the series, the nine messages, you need to go online and watch them. I, I did it last week. I listened to every message. Of course, I taught several of them. But uh, 
the the ones in the middle, um, I listened to every week. I came and listened to them. And then last Sunday, I actually sat down and watched the entire series back to back. And I took about 35 pages of notes. Just sat down and watched it online. It would be a good thing for you to review uh, the eight principles that we taught. Um, uh, in, in this series. Now, during this series, remember we taught that, that margin is the space between my load and my limits. And margin is having some breathing room in your life. It, it's not cramming every moment uh, with activity. It's not cramming your budget and not having any, any spare margin in your budget. It's, it's creating some reserves so you aren't running on empty all the time. And we talked about how you need margin in your physical and emotional and Financial and all time and everything. And in this series, uh, as in this last message, I just want to again review the eight principles. Because they are all important. Remember we talked about making space. Making space and time to refuel. We talked about slowing down. And and so you don't waste energy. If you're going too fast, you're wasting a lot of energy. Uh, we talked about starting your day right. Make sure your tank's full at the start of your day. Uh, and have a time with God. Talked about learning contentment, knowing your limits. We talked about relationships matter most and, and love is a priority. We talked about worrying less and trusting God more because more people burn out from worry than from work. Trusting God more for what? Worry that causes burnout far more. Anxiety causes more burnout than work does. And we talked about expecting the best, which is faith, while planning for the worst, which is wisdom. Expecting the best. How is that faith? You know, faith is being sure of what we hope for, confident of what we do not see, based upon actual promises that God has given us. How are you defining faith that way? The Bible says it's wise to plan, expect things to go wrong. And then last week I did that message on video on how to prune your life for greater fruitfulness. Now, today, what I want us to do is look at how do you keep your tank full? And in Matthew chapter 11. All right, so now Matthew chapter 11 is making an appearance under the context of how to keep your tank full. Jesus taught about this? Verses 28 to 30. 28 through 30, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Let's take a look at it first before he does and see if we can make any sense of it. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hmm. Yeah, um, the problem here is that that's not talking about margin. You know, heavy laden would be heavy laden with sin, guilt, you know, th- things of that nature. You can't. And by the way, trying to you know carry your sin and, and atone for it and make your relation and have yourself be justified before God by your works that's that's a load you can't carry or anything like that. So here. Rick is taking this passage out of context and making it Jesus the great teacher of the need to have margin in your life. That's not what Jesus meant or was referring to in Matthew 11. It says this. If you are tired, 
All right, we can just stop right there. That's most people. If you are tired from carrying heavy burdens, that's overload. That's no margin. Come to me and I will. What, what translation are you reading? Because again, Matthew eleven twenty eight from the ESV, which is a fine translation, um, 28 says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. The translation you're supposedly reading from says, if you're tired from Kevin carrying heavy burdens. This sounds like the message, which is not a real translation. It's a bad paraphrase, horrible paraphrase. Avoid like the plague kind of paraphrase. You rest. Take my yoke upon you. And then learn from me. For I'm gentle and I'm humble in spirit. And you will find rest for your soul. Now, for the yoke I share with you is easy to wear. So the load is light. Now... I'm going to give you five or six steps on how to keep your tank full uh, today. The first four are all in that section. Steps, steps. It, these, this is law. You gotta, you gotta, you got. I'm going to give you steps. Law, 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 law. Rick is literally laying a heavy burden on these people. Scripture right there. The first four, are all right there. So why don't you write these down? Number one. First step, if you want to have a full tank, keep it full, get fed up. Get- uh, so step one, it's not repent, trust Christ, be forgiven. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Step one, get fed up. See what I told you earlier. He's going to give us law, and then the solution is law. You got to, you got to, you got to. You're not, you're not measuring up. There's not enough margin in your life. You got to get fed up so that you'll, you'll do the right thing. So now the law becomes the solution for your lack of keeping the law. More com- commandments, keeping commandments becomes the solution for your lack of keeping commandments. That's not how Christian sanctification works at all. You're not keeping God's law and, and obeying his will. You need to repent. You need to be forgiven. As First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So no, he's leaving Jesus out of this. You're not measuring up. There's no margin in your life. We don't need Jesus. You just need to get fed up with how you've been living. Fed up. And I'm talking about get fed up with how I've been living. You've got to get dissatisfied. Nothing happens in your life until you get dissatisfied with the way your life is. As long as you're willing to live in a rut. As long as you're willing to live stressed out. As long as you're willing to live overextended. As long as you're willing to live sick and tired of being sick and tired. Nothing's going to happen. You could go through this entire series of nine incredible messages on how to live a more sane, peaceful rather than pressured, significant rather than stressed life and do nothing about it. And a year from today, you'll be just as stressed out and you'll be just as tired and you'll be just as overloaded. Why? Because you didn't get fed up. Yeah, could you show me in scripture where um, the uh, you need to get fed up step is listed as part of our sanctification. 
I'd really like to see that because I don't recall any passages that teach the important step of repentance and sanctify and sanctification and growth and holiness as you, you need to get fed up. And, you know, it's the fed up passages that, you know, that make the difference. Yep, I'm not familiar with any of those, and that's definitely not in Matthew 11. Nothing happens until you just get dissatisfied. Go, I'm not going to live this way anymore. And I don't know what it's going to take in your life to decide, I'm not going to live this way anymore. You might have heard nine messages and go, yeah, that's all good, but you're still going to live the same way. Stressed out, overextended, running on empty, pressured, tired as a dog, and all these things. Because you never intended to make a change. You didn't get... Is, is, is this the problem that Christianity solves? Fed up. Now, what causes us to get dissatisfied? What causes us to, um, to finally make a change in our lives? Pain. Pain. We don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. And when you feel, when the heat gets hot enough and you end up in the hospital and you're flat on your back, sometimes God has to lay you flat on your back to make you look up to him. In Psalm 23, it says, he makes me lay down in green pastures. Has God? Yeah, that's not about God knocking you on your back so that you're looking up. Oh, why is it that every time I review a Rick Warren sermon, he seems so hell-bent on, you know, twisting God's word? And I think that's the right way to put it. I had to make you lay down because you weren't smart enough to lay down on your own. He makes, sometimes the, the shepherd has to make the sheep lay down. because you've, you've done too much. You've done enough. You need to recharge. You need to refuel. Nothing happens. Now, the first part of the verse says this. Matthew eleven twenty eight. If you are tired from carrying heavy burdens, well, you got to recognize you're tired. You got to recognize you're carrying heavy burdens. Are you tired of running on empty? Are you fed up with the pace of your life? Are, are, are you willing to do something about it when you say, "I'm going to change somehow. I refuse to live this way anymore. Something's going to break if I don't change." Yeah, well, if you make that decision, you won't break. You're going to have a breakthrough. Now, if you don't get fed up with the pace that this culture teaches you to live, you only have two choices, breakdown or breakthrough. Because nobody can live the pace of the American dream the way it's processed. This last week, we had two very famous Americans take their lives to suicide. Successful, but worn out. Successful, but stressed. Famous, but not fulfilled. Having a lot of money, but not a lot of meaning. A lot to live on, but not a lot to live for. And we see that this is increasing. We know suicide is increasing in our society. It's even hitting kids. And the stress on those kids is coming from those little cell phones, which are comparison tools to compare yourself to everybody else on social media. 
And, and, and so, yeah, long before there were social media, kids were comparing themselves with each other based upon things like the clothes they wear, the shoes they wear, the car their parents drive. Yeah, that's always been a problem, and that problem is a result of our sinful nature. Either break down or break through. you got to get fed up if you're tired from carrying heavy burdens. Now, if you say, okay, Rick, I'm in, then this might be one of the most significant messages you've ever heard. So let's go through the next step. Step number two, get fed up is one. Step number two is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. In fact, Jesus in this passage uses three verbs. Come, take, and learn. Come, take, and learn. That's these next three steps. First, he says, come to me. Now, he says, come to me and bring me the good in your life, the bad in your life, the frustrating in your life, the painful in your life. The sh- now, I just have to ask the question. What does it mean biblically to come to Jesus? So this is the part where, you know, we're apparently going to find out that we need Jesus. Okay. Now, notice he's not talking about you feeling sorrow for your sin. No, not at all. It's more like being fed up with the results in your life. So my question is, what are you coming to Jesus for? Satisfaction or forgiveness? Painful in your life, the exhausting in your life, everything. Come to me and I will give you a sermon. (laughs) Oh, no, that's not what it says. Come to me and I will give you what? Rest. Now, I want you to notice, come to me and I'll give you rest. That's the second phrase. Here's the second step to refilling your tank. The second step to refilling your tank. How can this be the second step to refilling your tank? No biblical text gives this list. And Jesus wasn't saying, and now the second step to refilling your tank has come to me. Come to Jesus. Uh, I want you to notice who you're to come to, and I want you to notice what he promises to give you. First, who are you to come to? He doesn't say, uh, come to church. He doesn't say, come to religion. He doesn't say, come to rules. He doesn't say, come to rituals. He doesn't say, come to regulations. The antidote for the stress and the overload that you feel in your life is not a plan for time management. That's not a bad thing, but it's... Just not the antidote for your soul. Uh, a, a plan for time management. It's not a program for stress relief. It's not a philosophy. It's not a pill. It's not a plan, program, philosophy, pill. It's a person. It's a person. Come to me. Me. What you need is not a religion. What you need is a relationship. The answer to the stress in your life is not a plan, program. This pill. is an overused slogan. And here's the issue. Where is this taught in Scripture? What you need is a relationship rather than a religion. What is meant by that? You know, evangelicals kick that phrase around all the time as if, you know, everybody knows what that's supposed to mean. I don't know what it means at all, biblically. It's a person. Come to me, Jesus says. I'm the one who made you. I know everything about you. He's God. Come to me. Now, in the Bible, uh, 
people came to Jesus for all kinds of things. Some came for forgiveness. Some came for healing. Some came for advice. Let's talk about that forgiveness thing a little bit more here. Yeah, I mean, because we all need a savior. And according to the apostle Paul, the gospel that we are given to preach by Jesus himself. Yeah, the gospel that Paul preached, he didn't receive it from a human being. He actually received it by a direct revelation from Christ himself. And you can find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it it literally says there that um, Paul says he wants to remind people of the gospel that he preached. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 1, And which you received, which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the gospel in a nutshell. That he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Christ died for our sins is the gospel. Now, if you're going to sit there and talk about people needing to fill the tanks in their life and somehow burning the candles at both ends and being stressed out, you you could talk about the sin of idolatry. You could talk about the sin of of not caring for the uh, the body that God has given you, or things along those lines. And the solution is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Law and gospel, the two. And what we're hearing from Rick is, um, well, hmm. All right, so i got to come to Jesus. All right, what, do, what am I coming to him for again? Some came for eternal life, some came for food, some came to criticize, some came to question, some came as skeptics. You know what the thing is? Jesus didn't care why people came to him as long as they came. So notice, he's not calling people to repent and to be forgiven. Now, let me pull up another passage here. In the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, we have Luke's version of the Great Commission, if you would. And you can find this uh, in um, Luke 24. And here's what it says, starting at verse 44. When Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So now we got a problem, because here Rick said, It doesn't matter what you come to Jesus for, just, you know, come on to Jesus. Just come to Jesus, you know. Jesus, I'm really stressed out, man. I'm, and I'm fed up. I'm fed up with my life, you know. I just, I've been burning the candles at both ends, and I don't want to have a breakdown. You know, I, I need a breakthrough, you know. And, um, yeah, this has nothing to do with proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. To do those two things would require you to preach the law of God to expose people and make them realize that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and then preach the gospel, Christ and him crucified for our sins, so that they could be forgiven. Yeah. 
Jesus doesn't care why you come to him as long as you come. And you can come and say, God, I'm just wiped out. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm stressed. I'm depressed. So, yeah, just come to Jesus because, you know, you're stressed out and depressed. Is Jesus then your therapist? What, what is he at that point? I'm lonely. I'm guilty. I'm ashamed. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm unfulfilled. I'm worried. Jesus doesn't care why you come. Just come. He says, and how does one go about doing that then, Rick, in this context? Come to me. Come to me. The answer is a person. Come to me and I will give you rest. Now, look at this verse on the screen. In John 6.47, Jesus says this. Whoever comes to me, I will never reject. So you don't have to worry. Well, you, you don't know all stuff. Now, notice this still is not the gospel. Claiming people need a relationship, not a religion. That's still not the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is still technically in the realm of law. I've done. It doesn't matter. Jesus says, come to me. But you don't know my background. Come to me. But you don't know what I'm doing right now. Come to me. But you don't know the stuff I plan to do tomorrow. Come to me. Doesn't matter your past, your present, your future. You just come. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the answer. Not a seminar, not a therapy, not a book, not a tape, not, not all this other stuff. Come to me. And he says, I will never reject you. Now notice what he gives when we come to him. He says, whoever comes to me, uh, come to me and I will give you rest. Now later in the verse, he says, I will give you rest for your soul that's much deeper need than physical rest exactly in fact the text that you're pointing to seems to be talking about something completely different than running your tank on empty because honestly friends your problem isn't tired muscles your problem is a tired mind your problem is a tired emotions your problem is a tired spirit. It's a spiritual problem. It's a soul problem. You need rest for your soul. Not, not your muscles. No, some of you need rest for your muscles, but most of us need more exercise for our muscles. It's not that. That's not the problem. But we need rest from tension. We need rest from anxiety. So notice also the shape of the sermon. He's not exegeting any biblical text. He's in charge of the theology, not the Bible. Which is why he's ripping all of these verses out of context and using multiple translations to make the Bible fit his theology. He's not actually exegeting a text. From hurry, from worry, from stress, from the expectations of others, from comparison and all these things. How do you unwind when you're exhausted emotionally? How do you unwind when you're overloaded emotionally? What's, how do you get rest for your soul? Well, a lot of people's first choice is entertainment. Turn on the TV. Uh, you know, watch a movie. Uh, maybe exercise. Do a hobby. Got a sport. Listen, all those things are fine. And they'll rest your body. But they won't rest your soul. 
None of those things can rest your soul. You got to come to me, Jesus, to rest your soul. None of these can restore your soul. Only God can do that. The next verse, Isaiah 40, 29 and 31. He gives power to those who are tired and worn out. And he offers strength to the weak. Are you weak? He'll give you strength. Are you tired, worn out? He'll give you strength. Those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. Circle the word wait. Those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. Now, do you realize that this is the exact opposite of what American or any of our other cultures, Chinese culture, um, you know, for our Saddleback Buenos Aires, uh, you know, Argentine culture or German culture, Saddleback Berlin, all of our campuses. Uh, when we're empty inside, all around the world, culture says, go. When you're empty, fill it with activity. When you're feeling empty on the inside, you need to have more you need to be more, you need to do more, you need to go more. And that'll fill you up. How's that working for you? It doesn't fill the emptiness. It doesn't. It just doesn't fill the emptiness. So culture says go. Jesus says come. Come to me. Oh, that, that's so profound. But again, he's not really exegeting these texts. He's still in charge of the theology. This is Rick Warren's theology, and it's all law. We still have not heard the gospel. Come just as you are. And what you really need is time with God. That's what it means to wait on God. And Buddy did a whole message on that. Matthew 6, 6 says this. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be... Matthew 6, 6 from the message, which is... Not even remotely a, a translation. Tempted to role play before God. And just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. And the focus will shift from you to God. And you will begin to sense his grace. <laughs> what on earth? Matthew 6.6. 6, find a quiet scheduled place. So you won't be tempted to role play before God. What on earth? I mean, this is just abysmal. Matthew chapter 6. We'll read it in context. Starting at verse 1. ESV, which is a decent translation. It's a good translation. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you'll note that Matthew 6, 6, when you read it in context from a good translation, has nothing to do with what Rick Warren is talking about, finding a secluded place and don't role play with God. Just be there simply and honestly as you can manage. 
I don't. I mean, this is what the message says here is not even remotely close to what Jesus said. Rick Warren is is intentionally engaging in deception. If you don't know how to do that, I encourage you to take class two hundred one on discovering the habits for spiritual growth. Take that class uh, on how to have a time. Whatever habit you need for spiritual growth, it's going to involve rightly understanding God's word from a good translation with God. Or go back and review the message that we did on this. Okay, so first, I got to get fed up. And second, I've got to come to Jesus. Okay, here's the third thing. Give up control. Oh, boy. Yeah, notice everything's law. Come to Jesus, give up control, get fed up. Man, no gospel here. Here we go. Now we're talking about what the real issue is with the stress in your life. Give up control. The reason for overload is we're trying to control everything. The reason we do too much is we're trying to control everything. And we go around with it all depends on me and I've got to hold it all together. And listen, the greater your need to control, the more overloaded and the more stressed you're going to be in life. Sooner or later, you're going to realize most of the things that matter in life are beyond your control. Pastor Sam Yoon, our pastor uh, who shared in one of the messages, he, he said something brilliant and I loved it. He said, the only thing God wants you to control is you. Self-control. You can't control anything else. In scripture, you can't control your parents, can't control your kids, can't control your spouse, can't control your future, can't control your past, can't control the economy, you can't control your co-workers. The only thing you can control is self-control. That one's a good thing. That's one. Okay, so I think you get the point. What I'm going to do now at this point, I said we probably wouldn't get through this thing in its entirety. It is a pretty long sermon is I'm going to fast forward and let's listen to as he gets ready to give step number four. Here we go. The thing he says is learn to trust. All right. So step number four, learn to trust. Number four, learn to trust. This is how trust whom you keep your tank filled. Learn to trust. We did an entire message on this. Uh, Pastor um, Kurt uh, led, led this um, and... Um, It was learn, worry less, and trust more. Matthew 9, 29, the second part of the verse says this. Learn from me. Remember he says come, and then he says take, and now he says learn. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I have to admit, friends, I was a Christian for 30-something years and never understood how in the world is gentleness and humility Lower my stress. I just never got it. He goes, learn from me because I'm gentle and I'm humble. And I'm going, I don't get it. I don't see how that would make me less stressed. Yeah, because you're, again, just giving us all law, things I'm supposed to do. Fill my tank. But he says, you'll find rest for yourself. Jesus modeled how to live with purpose and peace. That's why he says learn. Jesus modeled how to live with purpose. Oh, boy. Rick Warren is all about the gospel of purpose, okay? And this fourth step to reducing overload is to follow. Yeah, fourth step. Learn how to trust. It'll, re- it'll reduce overload in your life. No biblical passage teaches this list or these steps, nor do any of them teach that this is what holiness 
and sanctification look like? Jesus model. He says, watch how I do it. Watch how I live. That's got, means you got to read the Bible. Watch how I live. Watch how, and then do the same. He says, if you want to be healthy, you want to be balanced, learn from Yeah, Jesus was the ultimate example of how to live a life of balance. Oh, man. <laughs> this is just absolutely miserable. All right, I'll fast forward once again, and we'll take a listen to uh, him setting up what step five is. Here we go. Learn to trust. All right, let me give you two more. And these are fast. We'll just quit. Number five, start every day by filling my tank. Oh. <laughs> start every day by filling my tank. That is, again, law. It's something I've got to do. Notice no gospel yet. Christ in him crucified for our sins has yet to make an appearance in this sermon. It's all you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. All right, let's keep listening for a little bit here. Start every day by filling my tank. And I don't have to go over this because we did a whole message on it. But start every day by filling my tank. Get alone with God and get alone with his word. Faith comes from the word of God. That's where you get the trust. Yeah, that's true. Faith does come from the word of God. Six, stay connected to my church family. Yeah, via small groups or whatever. Okay, so six steps to how to have a full tank. And nothing in there had to do with recognize sin. Call upon Christ to be forgiven. Jesus placarded for the forgiveness of our sins did not make an appearance, and every single time, without fail, that he touched the scriptures or brought them to bear in this sermon, they were out of context, and he was making them say something they don't say, and he was using multiple translations. He was spinning his own theology. This was not a biblical sermon by any stretch of the imagination. And that's the problem. And so, yeah, at the end of it, it's all law. You got to, 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 you got to. Here's six easy steps. You got to, you got to, you got to, you got to. And by the time I'm done listening to all of this, my tank's on empty. Because the only thing that would fill my tank is Jesus. And he wasn't present or preached in this so-called sermon. I think you get the point. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash firechristian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at firechristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>